Amen. He is risen. Amen. It is good to be here together on Easter, this Sabbath day. You know, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, right? But on Easter, we celebrate it a little more. <laughs> and, and, you know, I sometimes feel guilty about that, right? It's like, I should be this excited every Sunday. But you know what? Because of the resurrection, it's okay. It's okay to be a little more excited on Easter, <laughs> So I want to give you the freedom, I want to give you permission to celebrate the resurrection today as fully and as totally as you can, um, because we have freedom in Christ to do that. And then you can come back next Sunday and do it again, um, and, uh, and again, and again. We have been uh, in the book of Jonah, for those of you who uh, have not been with us the last several weeks, um, we've uh, been doing an in-depth study of that book, and it's been really great really challenging in some ways. Um, and today we come to a passage in Matthew chapter 12 where our Lord Jesus references the sign of Jonah. And so we're going to look at that today and we're going to allow God's word uh, to essentially fix our gaze on Christ and his resurrection and allow our hearts to be transformed by that. So let's read God's word together from Matthew chapter 12 verses 38 through 42. We'll read it together, together. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and so no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are so much greater than Jonah and so much greater than Solomon. And Lord, we pray that you would be here with us, that we would see you, that we would be um, confronted by you. Our hearts would be transformed by your word. And Lord, we pray that we would, Lord, somehow, by your grace, become like you. Um, Lord, rise us up with you as you rose from the dead. Lord, lift us up through the reading of your word and through um, our worship time together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, several weeks ago, um, my, uh, my dad had a major heart attack. Um, he was in the hospital for another surgery, um, which kind of triggered the major heart attack. Uh, so he started to kind of show signs and and so the doctors rushed him back to the uh, emergency room and they uh, started to kind of like examine his heart and they found that he had 100% blockage in his main artery. Later when the doctors were describing this to my, my family, they, they, were, they kept referring to the, that artery as the widowmaker artery, which my stepmother did not really appreciate. <laughs> that was not great bedside manner. Um, 100% blockage in his widow maker artery. He also had 
80% blockage in another major artery and 75% blockage in a different artery. So three arteries, a lot of blockage, right? My dad said that uh, later, he, he's fine by the way, later <laughs> when he was uh, kind of like going under from the anesthesia, he heard the doctor say something to the, the effect of, wow, this guy's heart's a mess. <laughs> and he literally told, he said, I thought for sure I'm going to go to sleep and I'm never going to wake up again, right? I'm going to be with Jesus. That's what he thought. And then he woke up again and now he's like, you know, why, why did God spare me? What's my purpose? And so, you know, he's trying to figure all of that out and talk with us about that. But, you know, he's the second person in my life that has had a near-death experience that is on the other side kind of saying, why has God left me alive? And I'm starting to feel a little singled out by God because I'm kind of starting to ask that question myself because, you know, all these near-death near experiences, you know, you start to ask that question. And, you know, with my dad, particularly with his heart health, um, you know, I was, I was meeting with a friend recently and we were talking about it and, you know, he was, he was saying, you know, when, when did your dad first have his first heart attack? And I didn't know, and so I called dad and asked him, and he said, well, I had it, my first heart attack when I was 47. I'm 45, right? So all of a sudden now I'm like, oh, there's a clock on the wall, <laughs> right? So my friend was like, you know, hey, you can go to your doctor and you can ask um, to get a CAC test, right? And they'll look at kind of your, the, the arteries in your heart, kind of see how much plaque is built up so you can know how much risk you are at. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. So I've called my doctor and I'm scheduling that. Haven't had it yet, but I am suspicious that it's not going to be good news, right? <laughs> There's lots of reasons for that. My dad's health being one, kind of some of my health patterns, my love of cheeseburgers, those sorts of things. So, you know, you can pray for me <laughs> specifically with regard to what that news will hold. Um, but you know, I, I tell you this because we've, we've been studying Jonah, and I think Jonah is a kind of CAC test for your heart. <laughs> um, you know, God loves to do this, right? He loves to kind of like reveal to us truth about our hearts in, in ways that are like we don't see coming, right? He does it through stories, right? He loves to tell these stories that are definitely not about you, <laughs> Nathan comes to David. He's like, hey, there's this dude in your kingdom who has done this really horrible thing, right? You got to do something about this as king. And David's like, yeah. And then Nathan's like, you're the man. <laughs> and David's like, oh, right? Or, or like Jesus, he's walking around. He's telling, hey, let me just tell you this really cool story about a prodigal son. It's nothing to do with you, right? Loves to tell these stories right, in order to reveal things, because they're not about us, and, and the Bible is chock full of all these historical figures that when you read about them, right, you start to realize, oh, I'm supposed to identify with this person, and there's some lessons for me here. Well, that's the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah was clearly written in order to get Israel to start laughing at this kind of buffoon of a prophet, and then see that really they had the same kind of posture as that prophet. So just in case you missed the series, here's the summary real quickly of what happens in Jonah. Remember, Jonah is called to go to Nineveh, the Assyrians, who were terrible people, awful people, 
kind of the worst people on the planet, arguably at the time. They had carried off the 10 northern tribes of Israel, like totally kind of like decimated like everything with them. Those, those tribes disappeared, right? They resettled that land and intermarried with them that later produced the Samaritans, right? Okay, so these are terrible people who did terrible things to 10 of God's tribes, okay? Jonah's called to go and call them to repent, right? Jonah doesn't want to go call them to repent. Jonah wants God to smack them up. He wants them like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he says, you know what? Instead of going and calling them to repent, I'm going the other way. I am going to run away from that call. There is no way I'm entering in to kind of like lead these people to any kind of grace from God, right? So he goes the other way. He attempts to, like he's so, you know, kind of intent on not going like, he sees this, like, God brings this whole storm to kind of turn him around. He's like, you know what? That's not stopping me. Throw me into the sea. <laughs> like, he's, he's intent on dying rather than going and talking to these people. And in fact, that's what happens. He gets tossed into the sea, and you think he's going to die, but this fish, or sea monster, according to this text, like, comes, and, and, and you think, right, normally... The, 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 what is described here is not a good thing, but it turns out to be a good thing. This fish swallows him, right? And somehow through that, he's saved, right? And he's led to some kind of repentance, and he's kind of like begrudgingly like talking about, you know, kind of how good God is, and, you know, he's kind of recognizing things. So finally, the fish kind of spits him out. And even after that experience, he's kind of like begrudgingly going to Nineveh. He shows up, he kind of goes just inside the city. He preaches a five-word, half-hearted sermon, right? Then the entire city repents, including the animals. They're important. Anyway, he then, he's like furious. He goes outside the city. He kind of like has this pout fest, right? God comes to him and starts kind of like engaging with him, gives him this plant to kind of like provide him some shade, and then provides a worm to kind of kill the plant, and Jonah's really mad about the death of the plant, and God's like, what's up, man? You care more about plants than people, right? Like, shouldn't I care for this great city with all these people? And by the way, there's also cows in there. Like, as much as I care for, the, as you care for this plant, right? So what, what's happening is God is essentially trying to reason with Jonah and show him that he has some major blockage in his heart. He has a major heart problem, and in doing that, right, because the people of Israel would have almost certainly identified with his, like, sensibility of, like, those Ninevites deserve to be judged, right? They're invited into the story to see themselves, and as we've preached through this, we've said, and so are you, <laughs> right? So are you. There's a kind of a Jonah test that we've been kind of applying to our hearts. Well, fast forward a few hundred years, and now in Matthew's gospel, we see the literal descendants of Jonah, like they literally are Israelite descendants of him, and kind of theological descendants of Jonah, the Pharisees engaged with Jesus in which, you know, a conversation in which Jesus must have felt like, I've done this before, <laughs> right? I, I had this conversation with Jonah, now I'm having it with you guys, and we're going to look um, specifically at how they're so similar. So um, they want a sign, and, and then Jesus says this very peculiar thing, right? 
Like, it's clearly a reference to his resurrection. The spoiler alert, this is Easter. We're going to talk about Jesus' resurrection. But, like, why does he talk about it as the sign of Jonah? That's a very curious kind of response, isn't it? So we're going to look at that. So here's my three points for today. The heart condition of the Pharisees. We're going to look at how it's similar to uh, Jonah. The fate of the Pharisees. What this heart condition means for their future. And then the sign of Jonah and its transformative power. Three points. The heart condition of the Pharisees, the fate of the Pharisees, the sign of Jonah, and its transformative power. All right. So first of all, the heart condition of the Pharisees. Uh, First thing you've got to see, right, because oftentimes, like I think as modern readers, we just kind of know, right? I mean, in the English language, Pharisee is a bad word. Like if you get called a Pharisee, that's bad, right? Like you you don't want to be called a Pharisee. In like the English language, just bad word, right? So when we encounter the Pharisees in the Bible and we read that, we're like, oh, the bad guys, right? What I want you to understand is like the Pharisees and Jesus, on the surface, they should have been okay. When I was, um, when I was in uh, middle school, my middle school did something, I'm not sure it was a really good idea, um, but to raise money for the PTA, they, um, they kind of gave us all these personality tests And then they offered the students the opportunity to buy the personality test results to see which specific students they matched up with, right? (laughs) Middle school. (laughs) They raised a ton of money because all of us were like so intrigued, right? And I remember getting my results and there was this girl on the top of the list, you know? And I was like, this is good because she got a list with my name on the top of her list, this is going to (laughs) work, right? So guess what happened? I mean, on paper, right? I was like, hey, (laughs) like, you and me. She was like, I don't care about that paper. (laughs) That doesn't matter anything, right? That's kind of the situation with Jesus and the Pharisees, right? I want you to see this. Like, doctrinally, the Jewish sect that was the closest in terms of Jesus' theology would have been the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees. Sadducees were way out in left field, right? There there were other sects that were also pretty different, right? And yet, like, Jesus seems to have the most kind of, like, rub with the Pharisees, right? That should tell us something, Presbyterians, right? We love to be right, but the kind of one thing that this reveals is, like, you can be right on paper, Like, you can publish books about systematic theology and still be wrong in your heart, okay? The other thing that that probably seemed like should have been a connection point for the Pharisees and Jesus is, like, the Pharisees loved to do the right things. That you can't say that they didn't try, right? Like, they tried very hard. In fact, they probably tried too hard. That was part of their problem. But, But, you know, they were concerned with righteousness, with godliness, with holiness. Jesus was concerned with those things, right? They had similar interests, just like me and this girl that didn't go out with me, right? Because she recognized that kind of like agreeing on the same things and having similar interests doesn't necessarily mean that you have a heart connection. The book of Jonah reveals the heart problem of the Pharisees. If we apply that test to them, just looking at Matthew 12, I want you to see how many similarities there are between Jonah and the Pharisees. So I'm going to give you a survey real quickly, okay? We didn't read all of 12 because, you know, 
We only have so much time. But 1211 through 13, there's this very curious conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees about healing on the Sabbath. Jesus wants to heal this guy. Pharisees are like, that's against the rules. Don't do that, right? Probably remember there's several kind of gospel accounts of things like that happening. And then they have a conversation where Jesus is like, you don't want me to heal this guy, but let me ask you a question. If there was a sheep stuck in a ditch right now, would you get that sheep out? What conversation does that sound like? Remember Jonah and the Ninevites and God being like, hey, there's some cows in the city. Don't you think we should save them? (laughs) Jesus is revealing kind of the heart of the Pharisees, like they care more about animals than they do about people, right? (laughs) Like you're willing to break the rule for a sheep. Hmm, not for a person. Okay, it keeps going. Notice in verse 14 of chapter 12, their response to all of that is they're like, let's kill this guy. This guy has taken mercy and grace to people, and he's not following the rules. He is not a moral person. He is crossing the line, right? They're sitting, and they're just kind of like, we are going to put a stop to this. We're going to wipe this guy out. Jonah had the same response, remember? He's like, I'm going to kill, like, I'm the prophet called to preach grace. I'm going to kill myself, (laughs) right? And just in the Pharisees' case, it's Jesus that they're going to kill. Both of them are trying to kill the prophet who's bringing, like, peace to the the lost, who's bringing hope to the poor. You see? You see the similarities? Then, in verses 14 through 21, there's this quote of Isaiah where Jesus is heralded as, like, the hope for the Gentiles. Well, the Pharisees don't like that. They don't like any hope going outside of the nation of Israel. It's like, for us, Jesus, you are supposed to be about liberating us from those jerks right? We want you to be a Messiah who's going to rise up in battle and take us into war with them and conquer them. We don't want to be hope for them. We need hope, right? You see how that's similar to Jonah? And then finally, and this is the real kicker, in 12, 22 through 24, the passage right before the one we just read, Jesus cast this demon out of this dude, right? And the Pharisees are kind of like, well, let me tell you what that is. That's the devil. (laughs) Jesus, you're the devil, right? Like, he's doing all this amazing stuff. They choose to sit in judgment of him. Does that sound familiar? Remember Jonah sitting outside the city, sitting in judgment of God for showing mercy to the Ninevites? You're just wrong, God, right? They're exactly the same. So the Jonah test reveals a very severe heart blockage for the Pharisees. Like, on all the different points, they measure up. Blockage, 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 blockage. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take that, and just like we've done with Jonah, let's apply that test to us. Do we have any similarities with the Pharisees? You know, there was a guy named Jeff Foxworthy years ago. You guys remember him? He was kind of a redneck, which allowed him to create this comedy bit where he would go through all these different things, and he would say, you might be a redneck if, and then he would say all these kind of funny things that would kind of make you laugh. Well, we're going to play that game. We're going to play, you might be a Pharisee if. Okay? Understand that the guy who's standing up here, like on Good Friday, we had a Tenenbrae service. I showed up, and there were different readings. I didn't know what I was going to be assigned to be reading. And I got to read the part of the Pharisees. I was like, Danny, (laughs) this typecasting, man. (laughs) Right? Okay. So if anybody in here is a Pharisee, it's me. But let's play... 
you know, you might be a Pharisee if. First of all, you might be a Pharisee if your performance brings you closer to God in your mind. Or if, essentially, you think you're closer to God than other people because of what you've done. And that might take the form, by the way, of you thinking, I'm not a Pharisee. They're the Pharisees. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Carolina fans, let me tell you something. <laughs> Let's talk. You got a little swagger to you. You know, I understand you've won several national championships. You know, I understand you played in the most recent championship game, whenever that was. I w- fell asleep. But, you know, you guys kind of walk around and it feels a little bit like you feel superior to everyone. Let me tell you something. I'm kind of tired of it. You know, as a state fan, I've been humbled by a lot of loss. I'm a very holy person. And God has put me here to let you Carolina people know what he thinks of all your pride. (laughs) Now, I'm making a point. It might not be the point you think I'm making. (laughs) Do you see it? You can be a Pharisee about anything. You can take any performance, even loss, (laughs) and a lot of loss. (laughs) And you can build a platform of righteousness on that, and you can decide that you're closer to God than other people. You can judge them. And if you're doing that, you might be a Pharisee, right? Here's another maybe indicator. What if you think about other people's sin a lot more than your sin? You might be a Pharisee. Do you guys do that? Like, there's a lot of sin out there to think about. A lot of us are kind of afraid of some of it, right? What's the sin you think the most about? Is it the sin out there? Because there's some scary stuff, I'll be honest. But what about the sin in here? When I, was, uh, when I was in college, World Harvest did a bait and switch on me. They came and spoke at my church, this missions agency, and they were like, listen, the front lines of where the kingdom is advancing is the mission field. You've got to go on the mission field. And then we got on the mission field, and this missionary sat down with us, and he said, you know what? Did you guys run out of non-Christians in America? Why do you think you need to be here? Right? And that kind of made us think a little bit about, you know, our Savior kind of complex. But, you know, apply that to sin. Like, when you start thinking about all that sin that's out there or that sin in that other person, did you run out of sin in here? (laughs) Because there's plenty of sin in here to think about. And if that's the case, you, you might be a Pharisee. You know, there's this quote by Anne Lamont. She says, you can safely say you, you've created God in your own image if you discover that he hates all the same people as you do. <laughs> hmm. All right, this last one I'm really going to get in trouble for. I put this one in here just to, like, eclipse the Carolina thing. All right, so sorry. Here we go. If you have very little compassion or concern for the lost or the poor, but 
You love cute puppies, cats, gardens, and spend lots of money and time on them, you might be a Pharisee. Let me kind of like press on this a little bit, right? Like some of, some of us have animals, wild animals, that we will invite to sleep in our bed for 10 plus years. And we will pay untold amounts of money to keep that thing alive and fed and, you know, all the different whatever vaccines and stuff that they need. All that stuff. We'll pay all that money, right? But the idea of sitting down and having lunch with a homeless person is about as far from us as we can get. So that's you pet lovers. Sorry about that. Now, what about you garden lovers? There's a guy who wrote a book called The $64 Tomato. Are you familiar with that book? Well, this journalist decided that he was going to start an organic garden, and he tracked all of his expenses and his produce, and he did the math, and he discovered that the amount of money that he spent to kind of like grow one tomato was $64 each. I find both of these things convicting. because I've spent over $250 just to keep a hermit crab alive for two years. (laughs) And I just spent, I I don't know how much at Home Depot on like raised garden bed soil on dirt. But how much time do I spend with the lost and the homeless? How much time do I spend cultivating the growth of people? Uh, How much do I concern about the lilies that I'm growing right now? I love those lilies. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have pets or gardens. I'm just saying, what does this reveal about your heart? Right? The Pharisees cared more about their sheep than people. They probably needed those sheep to live. We're mostly talking about pets and hobbies. I think that if we applied the Jonah test to ourselves, the evidence of blockage is pretty clear. Um, We are in fact, Jonah's. We are, in fact, Pharisees. And what is the fate? What is the warning that Jesus gives them? This is the end of the passage where he's talking about the Ninevites and the queen of the south. Let me just very briefly explain that. This is my second point, the fate of the Pharisees. All right, it's poetic justice. Jesus is saying, you judgmental Pharisees. You love to judge. But let me tell you who's gonna judge you. You love judging the foreigners, those who are far off. Well, I got two of them for you, the Ninevites and the Queen of the South. Let's talk about the Ninevites first. You already know them, Jonah, right? These terrible people that were far away from God. They were just kind of the opposite of God's people in many ways. And yet, a five-word sermon. God gave them very little. He gave them a reluctant prophet with a five-word sermon, and they repented. They were very far, and they were given very little, and yet, their response was incredible. The whole city, including the cows, repented, (laughs) right? On the other hand, there's the queen of the south, queen of Sheba, maybe from Ethiopia, maybe Yemen, there's a debate. What's important is she's not from Israel. (laughs) She ain't from around here. She's a foreigner, right? And what was she, what's her story? It's found in 1 Kings 10. She was attracted to the wisdom of Solomon, and she came from far away to kind of like see this amazing king and to submit to him. And to kind of like say, look, you're amazing. 
Solomon, who was very wise, was given the wisdom of God, but also who made some pretty unwise decisions at the end of his life. All right? Notice, like, she's given Solomon. The Pharisees are given Jesus. Jesus is better than Jonah, right? Jesus is better than Jonah is like the understatement of the Bible. Like, Jonah's probably the worst prophet. Jesus is, of course, the prophet, right? Solomon, you know, as the kings went, he wasn't terrible. But Jesus is a greater king, greater wisdom. And yet the, the Pharisees wouldn't submit to him. They wouldn't listen to the greater Jonah, and they wouldn't listen to the greater Solomon. They wouldn't submit. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? Your poetic justice is on the day of judgment, these people that you have judged, that you write off because you're so much better than them, they will judge you and point out how far off from God you actually are. That's a pretty intense warning. Let me personalize that for a moment. Just take a minute and think about the absolute worst group of people you know. For you, different people, it'll be different things. Some of you have experienced some really hard realities from people's sin. And it might be really hard to think about that group of people because they are that horrible. Right? That would have been the struggle of Jonah with Nineveh, by the way. And here's what God is saying through Jesus to the Pharisees. Essentially, those people if they receive Christ, if they hope in the resurrection, they will judge the ones who don't. Those outsiders will judge insiders that have judged them. I want you to, I want to press in on this just for a moment. For those of you who are here, some of you are here and you're kind of like, I'm an outsider. Like, I don't, you know, I don't fit in here. I don't feel comfortable in this church, you know. Uh, you're wearing a suit and tie, you know, you're a preacher guy, you've been here for 20 years, you feel comfortable, this is your church. I hear that a lot. I hear a lot of times, like I talk to people, and I'm like, I just, I don't know if I feel comfortable, you know, the church was really welcoming, but I just feel judged when I'm here. Here's what I want you to, to know. If you're, you're like that, if you feel like an outsider, you're, you're thinking about your own sin and you've come to church today, Jesus identifies with the outsiders. He identified as an outsider. So as the preacher boy who's been worshiping at this church for 20 years, there's nobody who's more insider at this church than me. Not even Jeff, who's the senior pastor, because he's a Johnny-come-lately. <laughs> I just want to say to those of you who don't feel comfortable here, thank you for letting me worship in your church because Jesus established this place for you. For those of you who are like me, insiders, and you feel very comfortable here, this is like, you know, your home. I want to, like, stress to you the warning that Jesus is giving here. Don't start to define your righteousness based on your comfort level here. Don't start to decide that you're in because you feel in here. Recognize the danger of judging those out there as other and less than, or else they will judge you. 
This is their church because Jesus has made it their church. And it can be your church (laughs) if you recognize that you have a heart problem that absolutely excludes you from being an insider in the kingdom of God. We all are outsiders, right? Okay, so we're all outsiders. What do we do? Those of us who are Pharisees, those of us who have the heart blockage, because hopefully by now you've started to like realize you have some. You've gotten the, the test, and you're kind of like, uh-oh, I got problems. All right, Jesus gives the, the Pharisees the sign of Jonah, and it's, 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 it's a very peculiar sign, as I said. First of all, they're asking for a sign. I, I got to say, like, it's a disingenuous ask. Jesus has done all kinds of signs in Matthew 12, right? They're asking for a sign as a part of their judgment of Jesus, right? They're not legitimately seeking a sign. And so if you read this, if you're kind of one of those outsiders and you're kind of like, I'm legitimately seeking a sign from God, and Jesus is kind of like asking all gruff with these people, they're not legitimately asking for a sign. Jesus said things like, you know, seek and ye shall find when it comes to the kingdom of God, right? So if you're looking for a sign genuinely, they're all around you. Jesus wants you to see him. He's not trying to hide it, okay? But what he is trying to do for the Pharisees is highlight the most important sign, the one they can't miss. That is why he says, this is the only sign I'm giving you. Just pay attention to this one. You can't see any of the other ones. You guys are obviously so blind. Your hearts are so blocked. You can't even see. But don't miss this one sign. And what is the sign? Of course, it's his resurrection, right? Of course, that's what he's doing. He's comparing essentially his death and his rising to Jonah getting swallowed by a fish and spit up on the, ocean, uh, on the uh, seashore, right? And, and there's a huge rabbinical tradition of them, of the rabbis, the Pharisees, essentially seeing Jonah's being swallowed by this whale and spit up on the, the shore as a kind of death and resurrection. Some of them actually argued that he actually physically died in there and was rose, risen from the dead and then spit out, okay? So when he's like referencing this, the Pharisees absolutely knew what he was talking about. So don't think Jesus is like being vague about his death and resurrection here. He's being very clear. If you're here and you wonder about Jesus's death and resurrection, he wants you to see it. He wants to be very clear he did that, Okay? But I think there's more going on here. Why the sign of Jonah? Partially, I think the thing is, Jonah's resurrection authenticated his message, right? That's what they're asking for, a sign that authenticates his message. Some have argued that Jonah, when he shows up at Nineveh, like because he just got spit out by a fish, like either smelled of fish or maybe the word had reached them about what had happened with Jonah. And so when he preaches that five-word sermon, that fact that he had kind of had that experience with the fish essentially meant that they received the message, okay? I don't know if I buy that, just you and me. Maybe that's the case, but here's what I think. I think the book of Jonah is really about God pursuing Jonah, and so I think the whole fish thing, what it really did was authenticate Jonah's message to Jonah, (laughs) right? Jonah, who very much wanted to not deliver that message, God was essentially saying, I will not even let you die 
to, in order to prevent this message from going forward. I, it will not stop by all of your efforts. You can try to run no matter where you run. I will not stop preaching the gospel. I will not stop this message of grace to the outsiders. You can't stop it. Which is why Jonah's kind of like, at the end of the book, kind of just resigned to it. He's like, all right, fine. God was authenticating his message to Jonah. Like, Jonah, when I called you to this, it wasn't just like a half-hearted thing. I'm not going to stop. Hey, outsiders, <laughs> those of you who feel like outsiders, that should be encouraging to you. God's not going to let his people get in the way of his message of grace for you. <laughs> By the way, Pharisees, <laughs> that's good news. <laughs> God's not going to let you get in the way of his good news for other people. <laughs> right? It's good news. But I think there's another thing that Jonah, Jonah's, like that reference is, is kind of alluding to. The other thing that God authenticated in the whole fish thing was his love for Jonah. He could have gotten another prophet. He could have gotten another nation, another group of people. He didn't need Jonah. Why did he save him? Because he was saying, Jonah, you can run as far as you want, but you're not going to get away from me because I love you. Even in the, the deepest parts of your pride, you think you can outrun me, but you can't. If there's one message that you hear today, that's what I want you to hear. There's hope for you if you have blockage in your heart that causes you to be blind and to run from an all-powerful God. He doesn't care. He's not going to stop pursuing you. And the death and resurrection of Christ is evidence of just how far he's willing to go. You go to death He's going after you and dragging you back up. You see? The sign of Jonah, what I want you to see in that, is absolute access to the love of God. In other words, it's not just a sign, it's a solution to the problem. It removes the blockage. When you start to see and experience the love of God that is so deep that he caused his son to die for you, it pushes all that plaque out of the way. All of a sudden, all this like selfishness, like I've got to be the greatest, I've got to earn everything, I've got to hoard everything, that goes away because you have access to it, the unlimited God and his unlimited love. Suddenly, it flows. As a friend of mine said, it, uh, the, the gospel, the, the sign of Jonah, right? It brings the outsiders in and turns the insiders out. The blockage is removed, and the love of God can flow. You know, it, we talked about Jonah. We talked about evidence that maybe Jonah changed, and the basis of that was we argued like, hey, there's this conversation between God and Jonah at the end of the book. How would anybody know that but Jonah? He must have written the book right? If he wrote the book, then he kind of repented and he kind of gave his story as a cautionary tale, as essentially like a, a testimony to don't be like me, <laughs> right? Like Peter telling the story about his betrayal of Christ, right? Now, we don't know that. It's not like rock-hard evidence that I can give you because there's nothing in the book that says, I, Jonah, or, you know, there's no signature at the end or whatever, 
And with the Pharisees, you know, I wish I could tell you that there was like a book written by a Pharisee that was kind of like a cautionary tale of, of don't be like me. It'd be really amazing, wouldn't it? It'd be really amazing if that Pharisee, like he saw himself as redeemed for a purpose, but like a purpose contrary to his old purposes, like maybe he saw himself as a messenger to the Gentiles. Wouldn't that be awesome if there was a book by a guy like that? And, and maybe it'd be awesome too if he would like identify like his lack of righteousness. It'd be really cool if he was humble enough to maybe call himself the chief of sinners, right? And, and wouldn't it be awesome if he cared enough for the poor to travel all around the world to different people to try to collect money for them? And, and wouldn't it be awesome if he was willing to go so far as to, like our Savior, sacrifice his life in order to see the gospel go as far as it possibly could? It'd be really awesome if there was a book like that. Well, the truth is there's several books like that. Most of the New Testament was written by a guy named Saul who became Paul. The sign of Jonah has incredible transformative power. Saul was blind, but Jesus broke through his blindness. He tracked him down, made him aware of his blindness by physically making him blind and then revealed his resurrected self to him. The sign of Jonah then transformed Saul into what we know as Paul. And the the words that he says about the gospel probably has more than anybody else informed how you understand the gospel. The sign of Jonah turned that insider out. You see? I want to conclude with, rather than just kind of like any kind of, uh, I don't know, neat illustration that I've come up with, I just want to let this Pharisee talk to you for just a moment. I've got a couple of passages from Paul's letters that I'd like to read about the resurrection and about resurrection hope. Um, his gift to you on Easter Sunday. Think of it that way. I just want you to close your eyes and listen to these words and be encouraged. This is Paul, the Pharisee. 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, but the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead. He saw it. The first fruits of those who are asleep, for since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. His blindness didn't stop Christ from breaking through. He goes on, Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul was not afraid of death. He didn't feel like he had to hang on to what he had. Heart problems are not a problem for those who are in Christ because our love blockages have been removed and we have eternal life in Him. 
2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how much he loves you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no blockage that can stop him. And finally, for this reason I bend my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its names, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit and the inner self so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. That kind of passion was brought from the cold, dead heart of a Pharisee. I don't care how cold and dead your heart is. The love of God is capable of breaking through. CTK, as we go through this new year, imagine it's a new year, Resurrection Sunday. May we spend the year soaking our hearts in the truth of the resurrection the reality of God's love for us, and may we allow that to serve like Drano (laughs) to the blockages of our hearts so that we might love like Christ loved. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.